0: Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. I've recently started a new business called Bia that helps women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural Whole Foods approach. If you're suffering from bad cramps, irregular periods, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Sarah Davis, to our show today. Sarah is the founder and president of Fashion File, the leading research. Platform for pre owned ultra luxury accessories. Back in 1999, Sarah realized that luxury handbags and accessories maintain their value on the secondary market better than just anything else in that category. So she started selling handbags on eBay to make some extra cash. Sarah started this business from her house in law school and now it's grown into a multi-million dollar business that has now a 30,000 square feet headquarters in Carlsbad, California, and brick and mortar showrooms all around the country. Under Sarah's leadership, Fashion File is paving the way way to revolutionize, not just re-commerce, but also the retail industry, despite being self-funded for almost around 20 years in 2019, Numa Marcus group invested in the business and has taken a minority stake this strategic partnership was a big one and makes Neiman Marcus the first major luxury retailer to expand into the pre-owned market. In our episode together, Sarah and I talk about the importance of not overthinking when it comes to starting a business and why it's so important to just take that first step and small action. Sarah reminds us the importance of not only being persistent, but to make sure you're thinking long-term when it comes to building a business. And we'll talk to her all about this today when it comes to fashion File, Sarah, also opens up about how she decided to go all into her business despite being a recent law grad that just passed her bar and getting a ton of pushback from her family and husband and friends. Sarah's journey is super impressive. She talks about why they decided to self fund the business for many years, why she decided to partner with her brother in law, and also advice when it comes to structuring partnerships, and how focusing on each customer was really the marketing engine for her business and helped grow them to the multi million dollar business they are today. Sarah also shares how you can find your passion and what truly lights you up, and how this could be your biggest competitive advantage when it comes to starting a business. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. There's so much I want to talk about today. I really am inspired by your own journey. So I'm super extra, extra pumped about this. But I kind of want to start with a higher level question. And I meet with so many amazing women, so many of them who listen to this podcast. And this might sound very blunt, but I think sometimes, and I've been there before, we overthink starting a business or really going after our passions. And sometimes we overthink too much where we don't take any action. And I heard you in another interview say if you want to have a business, just get started and try to learn what to do better day by day. And in 10 years or 15 years or maybe even 20 years, it's going to be amazing. So I love this so much. So can you just maybe share more about why you said that and what it means to you?
1: I feel like I have a lot of friends or people I've talked to. People reach out to me and they'll say, I've got an idea or you know, I've been thinking about this thing. And there's so much angst about making it perfect before they launch something. And I feel like there's so many people that I'm like, we've been talking about this now for years. If you would have just got started back then, just iterating along the way, you'd actually have something at this point. And I think sometimes we glamorize a more thought out, I've got a business plan, I've got funding and it ready to go. And you glamorize this well, very well organized path. And for a lot of us, it's just not that it's a lot of iteration and, and a lot of building as you go. And for me, the long road and just slowly every day trying to improve on what I'm doing.
0: And that's why I love your story. And that resonates so much with me. And I definitely have been there, so I get it. But sometimes we have this idea and I always tell people, just go and make that first dollar. Like, don't think about yeah. that first million. Like if you can make a dollar and then make 10 and then make a yeah. hundred, you know, it's like yeah. small building blocks, but I love this. And so much of, you figuring out sometimes what your idea is, which we'll go into your story, is just putting it out there and iterating and just taking one step at a time. You know, you didn't have a specific business plan. So we'll get into all this. But I loved, love your answer. And I actually also was fascinated. I'd love to start with the very early days with your upbringing. You were a child of six and you guys moved around quite a bit. So I'd love to hear more about your upbringing and how you think it really shaped maybe your identity and your personality
1: yeah that's a really good question, not one that gets asked very much. So I you know had to think about it for a second. but I really think it has everything to do with it, honestly, because number one, that lifestyle, I always joke that I was like a gypsy, you know, a nomad, however you want to describe it, it's hard. It's hard to just start over again. It's hard to make friends at all, you know when you're young. that's that whole thing is hard. But the idea of having to pick up and start again and again and again, I feel like there's lessons that can be learned in that kind of, in the lifestyle that I had as moving around and just forcing me to kind of like adapt. It's like adapt or die, like adapt or you're going to be really, you're going to struggle. And some people do struggle. I'm glad that I was able to kind of put me in a situation where I can kind of be dropped in a situation and, and be okay, because I think I learned that it was okay last time. I'll be able to figure this out. And then secondly, being the oldest of six kids, we just didn't have a lot of money. And honestly, as I think back, I get emotional and I think about what a gift that was because it just really has given me a hunger my whole life to just do something. So meaning I always had to buy my own clothes, you know, like that wasn't, oh, we've got, you know, it's like, oh, it's time to go school clothes shopping. That was me. How am I coming up with the money and what am I going to wear to school so I'm not embarrassed? I'm Like those things that maybe you think, oh yeah, you can remember those times in junior high where you have to wear the right jeans or you have to have the right shoes. And I had to buy those things with my own money. And so number one, it just forced me to like find a way. I always found a way. Once I turned 16, I had jobs, but I made work for myself since I was a young girl because I needed money. And so I found ways to make money. Today, you would have looked at young Sarah Davis as an eight-year-old and been like, oh, she's an entrepreneur. But back then I was just like, oh, look at her. She's so scrappy. My mom had called me industrious and that was the word she used, but I was never entrepreneurial was, is a newer word. That thing back in the day that people used to do to try to make a few bucks here and there to be able to, you know, just kind of like really for me fit in and like have the things I needed. So we had a house that was, you know, we had cars to drive. So I can't like, I'm not, there's people have it much worse than us, but I had to buy my own stuff. And that was, that was a lesson that I'm glad I had. Um, It's really served me well over, over my life.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's why I was so curious because from such a young age, you were always hustling and making money, right? I mean, even, you know, I'm going to fast forward a little bit, like you were going to law school, you know, you didn't end up clearly pursuing that path, but you were also, and I'd love to hear like selling clothes to make money, but what did your law school experience look like? Because that was really the foundation for what was yet to come in your life.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because when I was in high school, I was a debate nerd, but I also took like a release time fashion design class where I got to go to college with other kids, mostly women, actually all girls from the district would go and took this, you know, from like 12 to three, took this fashion design class. I always had an eye for that as well, but I was a debate nerd. I loved that. And if you're a debate nerd, you go to law school. That's kind of like the path. It's like where you go. My entire squad, debate squad is all like at law school here or there. I always kind of just thought that was going to be my path. I really enjoyed it. And I will say, I don't regret it at all. Like, I love the way that in debate or, you know, in law school, you really learn logical thinking and also just kind of the idea that reasonable people can disagree on things. Yeah, You know, even from when I was in junior high, you flip a coin and you're going to debate for or against abortion, whether or not, whatever I believe, I have to debate the other side and debating the other side really helps you to think, oh, okay, a reasonable person might disagree with me on this. And I think that has served me well over the years and really just, you know, kind of in life. So adding to that, just the idea that I was always just trying to make a dollar and for whatever reason, because I, that was always in the back of my mind. It was, I was always like looking for the opportunity. Like, where can I, how can I make some money in this? Cause you always need money. And for people, I feel bad because my kids will be like, Hey mom, I'm going to the movies. Can I have $20 and I'll give them $20 fast. My parents would have laughed in my face, you know? And I'm so grateful because I was like, I, I need 20 bucks. I'm trying to go to this concert. Back then, it, they were $20 to go to a concert. But, you know, i <laughs> like, I need the money. And so I'd find the money. And so when I went to college, I bought a pair of hair clippers and I cut boys' hair in the dorms for $5 a head. And I never went to hair school, I you know? That. And there was no YouTube videos at the time. I had yeah. brothers that I practiced on growing okay. up stuff. And so I was like, Oh, I can do this. And then you meet the cute boys, you make a little money, you know, all the gossip that's going around. Cause they're all talking while you're doing their hair. And it was just like a fun way to like, Oh, this is an opportunity. They're all going to get, I can just sit in the dorm and cut four heads in one spot. And then I got, and just kind of thinking like that. I'm grateful again, had I had my school paid for I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have been thinking like that. I was always thinking, how can I make a dollar out of this situation, which is kind of weird, but I'm grateful for it. You know, in the long run, I think it served me well.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting because someone who's thinking that way, I would think that you would graduate law school and get a stable job, right? As a lawyer, you can easily make six figures. Like anyone who's grown up with not a lot of means, that's like the goal of college and graduating, but you didn't go down that path. So what was going on in law school that really shifted you from not taking that stable job?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I, like I said, i actually really loved being in law school. I really enjoyed the whole process and the curriculum. I loved, I love to read the law is create, it comes from like all the weird cases, you know, it's all this, even like you're studying property law, which is so boring contracts the actual like situations that are creating the case law are all these very odd situations and people that make it actually, I found very interesting. So I was really enjoying it. But again, at the same time, I was paying for my own school, you know, and so I was going into debt and had to pay for my living and all that. And so I learned about eBay in those years, and this is in 1999, and. And I was, at first I wasn't even thinking about it. My first, the first thing I thought was, this is what a cool place. The first experience I ever had, I was waiting in line at a children's boutique in the mall. And the woman in front of me was buying like all of their clearance blankets. And the woman at the cash register, and this is so early, so eBay was not well-known. The woman who was was helping her at the cash register says, hey, you always buy all our clearance blankets. Like, what are you doing with these blankets? And she's like, I actually sell them on eBay. She's like, sometimes they're collectibles. And so I went home and looked at it. I was like, oh, that's so weird. These blankets, she's making like, she's buying for like $20 selling for 40. And I'm like, oh my gosh, she buys 10 blankets. That's $200. And you know, if you're working an hourly job, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. But the thing I found that was so weird is that some of the blankets that were selling for more money were used. They were just like the collectible line of this particular. So I was like that, this is what is, what am I looking at? (laughs) Got in, looked at eBay and I was like, oh my gosh, stuff is selling on eBay. And this is just like, hello. And obviously this is now something a lot of people do, but I just sold a bunch of stuff that I had sitting around the house that I was going to donate. And I made like $200 off of my junk, you know, not junk, just clothes I was going to sell. Nothing fancy, nothing luxury at all. And I was blown away, you know? And so I was really like, okay, there is something here. Along with that mindset of always having to make a dollar and paying for my own things, I was a very, and I still am. I'm like, I'm a really, I can find a deal. I can sniff it out. I can always find a really (laughs) good deal. And usually a lot, oftentimes in pre-owned, like oftentimes it's in thrift stores, consignment stores is where I had in my earlier years, that's where I would shop almost exclusively. I mean, still today I buy used, but now I shop online as well as, in thrift stores. So, you know, it's like, Oh my gosh, I'll often find like, Oh my gosh, that's a gorgeous Prada skirt, but it's size zero and I'm not size zero and I can't buy it. And then after I learned about eBay, I was like, yeah, I'm going to buy that. I'm going to sell it for $75 on eBay or whatever. And so started in those early days, kind of turning while I was in law school, i learned, you know, this is, I learned about this. I'm like, this is incredible. So I just start literally selling everything that's not nailed down in my house that was, we didn't have a lot of us yeah, in school. So we weren't, we didn't have, I didn't have very much stuff to sell. So then I started buying things to resell. And I started with clothing and accessories, shopping at consignment stores that are trying to look for high-end things at consignment stores. And also Neiman Marcus last call, Saks off fifth, things like that. Like where's a screaming deal that I could flip on eBay. And those, and then I realized right off the bat that I was like, okay, clothes are just really hard. Luxury clothes are often altered and the sizing is different depending on the brand and some people there's a hole in the pocket i didn't see it's like and i was like oh my gosh handbags just really keep their value and they're really challenged because at ebay at the time 95 percent of them were counterfeit in the early 90s ebay was not what it is today it was very wild wild west there was no authentication there's no buyer protection things like that and so yeah that's kind of how we started
0: out of commission for at least a week every single month, and that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen, If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com free. Once again, it's beawellness.com free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening. And now let's get back to the show. Well, I'm just amazed that I haven't heard the story how you heard about eBay from going into that store and hearing that woman. Like It just shows how you've always been open-minded and just looking for opportunities. Like It's in your subconscious, even when you don't expect it. That is incredible. And your curiosity too, I think of even going back home and being like, what is she talking about? So I just think that's super fascinating. And when you're in law school, you clearly were selling different things. You realize that these luxury bags might've been a better opportunity. Were you making a significant amount of money that when you graduated, you're like, I want to pursue this because I see an opportunity. Or what were you thinking at that time?
1: In the very beginning, as I first started selling, I was just like, this is too easy. This stuff yeah. is itself. It's just like I'm actually making money. I wasn't thinking this is my new career. I was thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm like gonna pass the bar and I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a great legal job. And then by the way, this little thing I have, we would always joke and call eBay, like the rich, our rich aunt that we never had. It's like, Oh yeah, I want to buy this. And some people have a rich aunt to hook you up. I would sell a few things and I can buy the thing that I want or whatever. I think that I just was like, okay, number one, yes. I can actually pay for my law school. I was like, this would be incredible. What if I could graduate from law school with no debt? I was like, this is incredible So That was kind of the goal in the beginning. And then when you talk about, I love thinking about things like the woman, you know, at that store who is she? Like yeah, pivotal moment for me. And I don't know, like sometimes if that conversation had a different time, happened a different time, I don't know what the result would have been. It was an important part of my life. I had another situation happen when I passed the bar and at this time I'm selling only luxury bags and I'm making pretty good money. But at this point I'd been, I just graduated from law school and then I took the bar and I passed the bar. And so it's like, okay, this is go time. And my husband, I'm, I'm now married at this time. And my husband, he's like, okay, well, good. Now you can get a proper job. Like, none of this weird thing you're doing online. And so I was like, well, I don't know. You know, I'm like making pretty good money with this thing. And I really like it. I really liked the creative part, the thinking about it, the branding, the connecting with the customer, the learning what they want and kind of figuring out the problems and solving the problems. And so I was like, I don't even know what I'm, I still had like some time left, but well, you know, before I w- was going to start to, had already written out letters and started passing out letters, you know, but had a couple interviews and nothing still. So it's still going on with my business. I was like, you know what? I'm making enough money. I think I might be in trouble. Like from a tax standpoint, I probably need to talk to a professional Yeah, and maybe them structuring this thing that I'm doing wrong where I need to talk to somebody at professional. I didn't have anybody to go to. Like I said, I didn't go to business school. My husband didn't go to business school. We didn't come from that world, and so I literally just said to I said to my husband like, "Who's the richest person we know?" <laughs> and it was it happened to be a guy who owned a cancer clinic, and you know, not even like totally different world. And I said, so I rang this guy up. I'm like, "Who does your money? You seem to have a lot of money." <laughs> I have this must been an awkward conversation. <laughs> who does your money? Like, who's your bookkeeper? I've got these questions about the way that I kind of the structure of my business and what I'm doing and taxes and all that. And do you have somebody you could talk to? And he's like, you know what I do? I've got this account and he's super like entrepreneurial and you probably enjoy talking to him. So he connects me to this guy who, who literally like, again, like he's a couple of meetings in my early life and I've never talked to him again. And he, I bring in my spreadsheet that's basically handwritten, but no, it's like an Excel, like totally rudimentary. And he looks at it and he's like, what is your plan? And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> I like, what? He's like, what's your, you know, what do you, where do you see yourself in five years? And I'm like, I don't know, probably this legal thing, keep this thing going, but you know, I'm really enjoying this. He's like, I think you've got something here. You know? So he said, you know, you should, he's like, I've got this book I want you to read. It's called the E-Myth. And it's a book that a lot of business school, you know, like first years read or whatever. And it's called, it's the e-myth is the entrepreneurial myth. It's like why most small businesses fail. And in the book, it talks about how if you're an entrepreneur, a lot of times you spend so much time in the business, packing and shipping and photographing. And maybe for you, it'd be like editing your podcast and working on the sound and putting out the marketing that you don't have enough, you don't spend enough time on the business which is doing the marketing and networking and like building out new you know lines of business and like kind of growing it. Anyway, it blew my mind. By the next time I met with this guy, I'd moved the business out of my house. I hired a couple people. I'm like, I was convinced that I, I care about my packaging. Like I always have it nice. And I just thought I like doing it. I put a little note in there, you know, at the time. And I was like, I just like owning that. And I feel like our, my customers like it. And that's part of what's making it big. But in this book, it's basically like, no, you can teach someone to do that. You can teach someone to package nicely. You can teach someone how to photograph. You can te- There's parts of you can't teach somebody yet, you know, and hold on to those things. And so I, I hired a couple just like part-time college girls and literally started making money. Like I was making money before, but I was like, okay, whoa, oh, wow. With a little help here, wow. make maybe something out of it. And also just the separation, getting it out of my house. It was overwhelming, like packages in my house, like box shipping stations, like I can't even tell you in those early days. And it was so anyway, so that kind of really changed things. And again, that guy, he's got to be like, I don't even know if he's alive still, you know, he was old when I met him. And it was uh, such one of those little moments where he really kind of lift that fire under me that made me take that next step that really launched everything else. So
0: oh my God. I just I get so emotional hearing that because I believe in all these things. Like that's why I'm so passionate about putting yourself out there, meet people. You never know where life will take you. It's so amazing because it feels like you were destined to do this, right? From the meeting in the store and then you met this guy. The timing just was so wonderful.
1: Yeah. It's interesting because when you think about timing, it's like it's so relative because honestly it was so, it, he was like, wow, this is great. This looks great. But the reality is in my life, yeah, I've got people literally telling my husband, your wife is smart. And she like graduated from law school. Why is she doing this? Because I was making money, but I wasn't making money, more money than I could if I was a lawyer. Sure. And I'm working out of my house. And then finally, my, our first office was 350 square feet, yeah. half the size <laughs> of this conference room in right, right, right now. And I've got these college students. It's, it was not sexy. And so I've got friends going, Sarah, you did work so hard. This is yeah. what you wanted in your whole life. Like, why would you? And so when you talk about the timing, part of it is like the timing is perfect. And for me, it was all that, all perfect. And from the outside, sometimes it looks not perfect. And so, mm. and there's a lot of voices saying, why are you wasting your time with that? And by the way, again, if you come into our world now, if you come to here, I'm, you know, I'm in my office in, in New York City and our, we have a are normally in our office in Southern California, it's beautiful. And it looks professional and polished. And you'd be like, wow, in those early days, it was none of that. <laughs> it was none of that. And not you, because you're passionate, you get it. But some people might look and they did kind of go, hmm, why are you doing this? You know, you've got this other thing. And they're trying to give, pump me up. They're trying to be like, Sarah, you're, you could be a lawyer. Come on. You know, like, why are you doing this? And so it's interesting when you talk about the timing, because I think you're right. For me, it was perfect. But sometimes for an outsider, they wouldn't see it that way. So,
0: And how did you stay the course? Because you felt in your heart that this was the right thing to do. But how did you not get influenced by your husband, your friends? Like, these are very close people to you yeah. telling you, Sarah, you passed the freaking bar. You're not going to get a job. Like, how did you not let that kind of infiltrate your own thoughts of starting this?
1: Yeah. I feel like there's sometimes there's, there's actually, there's a guy named Paul Graham. He's like the founder of Y Combinator. I'm like obsessed with all of his essays. He wrote this essay and in it, he talks about the fact that sometimes you have something in your life, something you're working on, and it's actually an edge. If it like, it just, it does something for me that, that other things aren't doing. So I enjoyed law school. I really liked it. It was stimulating to me mentally and I enjoyed the reading and the and all that. But like it's almost like an edge that I have in my life that I love this so much. I want to do it all the time. I want my actually when I talk about like what I try to do is I try to stop thinking about it because a vacation, not thinking about this doesn't sound fun to me. And I know that I, I actually need to like, not, I need to like turn it off at sometimes I need to be be in the moment. You're at a football game watching your kid on the field. Don't be thinking about this marketing thing you're working on. We're lucky if we find that thing that, that we just think about all the time. Cause honestly, for me, what that means is cleaning the toilet isn't a monotony and doing the dishes isn't bad. Cause I've got something going on in my head that I'm just like so excited about. And it's kind of an edge. Cause some people have it's like a little edge that we have, if you have that, because some people are starting a business and it's a good idea and they're working on that idea. They don't have that. They, they're missing that part. And so the fact that I have it, I think that's been one of the things where it just didn't matter. Like any of those obstacles that came there's through the, through the time, there's been ups and down. There's been things that have gone badly or whatever. And because it's just so, you know, it's also, there's the, is that from the Michael Jordan documentary where, I love that. where you're like, yeah, where he's talking about like, it's so much, he works harder than anyone else, but he doesn't think so for him, it's play. He's actually like, I'm not a hard worker, but I, this is play. This is fun for me. So it's not for him to stay all day long. That's not hard for him because it's, it's fun. And so I think that's a real, if you find something that you really love that much, and I don't think it has to be. For some people, it could be writing. I just actually talked to somebody. She's an animator. And she's just obsessed with it. it. It She has that thing, whatever it is, that keeps up at 2 in the morning because you got the flow. You're, like, into it. I think if you can hit that vein, that can take you a long way. Yeah. Ugh. I love
0: that. And I love how you said it's like the edge. And also when you're living this passion that you find other people see it and like the universe conspires to like lift you in whatever ways, because they see this is your joy, whatever it is. It doesn't even have to be about business. It could be like you said, writing, it could be spending time with your kids. Even if that is what like really turns you alive, like it could really be anything, but I really wish that gift for everyone is to figure out what that is. And at least for me, you know, it took me, I was in three different careers from investment banking, then to tech. And then I like worked with my dad for like a small stint, which was very interesting. (laughs) It's just like all those experiences finally allowed me to find my passion. So I always just tell people, put yourself in different situations and try things because slowly you'll figure out what your edge is. And I want I really want that for anyone who's listening today. It's
1: so true. It's so true. And I love what you're saying too, because that's another pitfall I think people run into is that they're sitting around thinking of something. And I'm like, just do stuff. Like you're doing all of the things, you do the banking thing, you work with your dad, you're trying all the things and in the mix of your life, you're going to come up with something. You know, I think it's a real, sometimes I'll find people and I'm like, they're just depressed. They're trying to think of the next thing. They're like, they're entrepreneurial and they're really trying to think of something. I'm like, honestly, get a job do something because you're going to find a problem that is not being solved and that you're uniquely situated to be able to solve it in just the, the run of mill of your life. And kind of like you did, you're like all the different avenues, trial the things, and then you find something that you're passionate about. Gosh,
0: I love that. You're right. And there's a lot of people that kind of live in the space of Somewhat depression because they really want to start something, but they don't know what it is or it's not getting off the ground. And I feel like maybe getting a job is okay. Like building that momentum in some other area of your life, like you can figure it out in time. And this is a separate thought, but like the reason you saying you have an edge, you doing your business for how long has it been now? Twenty four (laughs) years?
1: so long. Yes.
0: (laughs) That is your competitive advantage. Like even for my business, you know, outside this podcast, it's like, I'm passionate about supporting women in their health. And like, I'm going to be doing this till the day I die, whether it's through the business or some avenue of some sort, that is what has allowed you to stay in the game and ultimately create this like incredible business. So I think that's super important to have if you're going to start. something Because it's hard. right?
1: I think you're right. And, And, you know, again, it just kind of normalizing the slow go, my business is, has grown every single year since we've been in business and meaning some years it grows very slowly. 2010 entrepreneur magazine called Fashion Refile, one of the smartest, most innovative hands-down companies on their radar. And then I joke that we like went under the radar for like 10 years because we were still growing, but so many companies around us came into being in that next few years and then grace raised a ton of awareness, a ton of money that brought up awareness and honestly I'm so grateful for it because it raised our awareness as well as there's awareness into resale in general that definitely benefited us and so I'm grateful for it but we kind of went under the radar even though we were growing we just didn't have the awareness of all of the a lot of the larger players at the time it's just one of the things that we're just steadily steady eddy growing. And actually it's a foundational way to go. I think it's problematic. Sometimes some businesses pop so fast, they grow so, and they actually just can't keep up or it's not organic. It's like buyers are being bought through means that are not, are not natural, that is not, you know, fueling that type of natural growth. And so just normalizing the idea that what did Fashion File look like seven years in, 10 years in, it was a nice little business. 10 years in, we had A little office in Beverly Hills, another little office in San Francisco. We probably had 20 employees. It was enjoyable. It was totally different than what we're doing now, but it was enjoyable. But I don't know that at the time that some people might have looked at us and thought, hmm, you could have been a corporate lawyer. You could have been doing these things. And this is interesting. You're running like a little resale shop. (laughs) You know, even though we had this thing in mind, I just took the slower route.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I have a ton of questions that I want to ask about this. And the first one that comes to mind. So you said you, I know you s- opened up your first office in Beverly Hills. So were you guys always selling online versus a physical location? What did it look like in those early days?
1: I started selling on eBay and we're, we literally were on eBay 100% till 20, 2007. So okay. we opened up in Beverly Hills in 2007. And kind of what happened is right when we opened up, we opened our website. Fashionfile.com. Fashionfile was our user, my user ID on eBay at the time. Oh, I love it. Yeah. So we opened up a store and kind of what we did was we said, you know what? People are coming to, we're like, hey, we're here. We're in the area. And a lot of people have bags to sell and buy in the area. And so we had a tiny little spot, but we're like, hey, if you see something online on our website at the time, you know, that you like, you can stop by. Or if you want us to sell something, you can do the quote, 85% still of what we sell um, comes from people who, like you, are at home and you take some pictures, we give you a quote. You're like, yeah, that sounds good. And then use our free shipping label, to ship it in. And people have always done that. There's always been a small segment of people who kind of were nearby and they're like, hey, yeah, I'm nearby too. Can I just drop it off? And we're like, sure. So we realized that was happening enough where we're like, okay, let's clean this up a little bit. So it was in my house in the beginning, and then I partnered up with my brother-in-law in 20, 2006. And so it's was part, partly in my sister, and my sister worked with the business as well. So it was partly in their house. And so we're like, okay, we can't invite people into the house. They were literally like, can I see in that tub? Can you pull that out? And I'm like, you know, it's just awkward. It's like, okay, let's just, we realize that people want in the area, want that interaction. So we opened up a shop, you know, 2007, Rodeo and Wilshire. Second store, we were there till 2019. Oh, nobody wow. knew. like nobody knew, you didn't to know to know, but we're there. People, we've got lots of customers who, who did know, but we didn't move out of that space until we moved into Neiman Marcus, which is a little plot twist of what's going forward. But, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we were in that same space starting in you know, it was actually early 2008 that we opened up in that space, went from our the house in Beverly Hills. <laughs> the guest house that my brother and sister law were living in to that space. You know, and then we just said, Hey, do you wanna, you know, if you wanna come in, we put all of our inventory that was in our inventory cages just on display. And we said, Oh well, it's online. But and so we sold and still to this day, we sell about ninety seven percent of our inventory sells online, yeah. even today. And then about three, four percent sells out of these physical locations. So from that tiny thing in Beverly Hills, we opened another one in San Francisco and the same thing, all the inventory was on display and we would sell some things local, but 96, 7% were selling online. And it's the same thing today. So if you come in, this is is 60,000 square feet in Chelsea in New York City. We've got in Carlsbad, we've got another 30,000 square foot warehouse in Carlsbad. And if you come to Carlsbad, if you're looking for a luxury backpack, we might have 900 on the website. We might have 450 in Carlsbad. No way! I need to come visit. <laughs> right, and we say so in Carlsbad. Now we've like added some technology to the process. So you, uh, you know, if you add things to your cart at home that are in at home, you add them to your cart, and those things are located in Carlsbad. Then when you get into that Wi-Fi environment, a button pops up in your cart that says select. You know that you says allows you to select those items, and you can request them. And they, ca- our team will pull them out of inventory and put them down this little elevator, little dumb waiter that it's a tiny little, the bags come down. That means that in resale, normally, if you go into a resale shop, I love resale shops, I love vintage shops, but even like a really amazing one might have 30 purses and of those, maybe five are brands even like, and of the five, maybe one is something you're even interested in, but maybe it's like too beat up or whatever. Here, it's literally if you're looking for a backpack, you might have 450 there. You said, I, I want Chanel. Okay, now we have 80. You're like, I want black quilted Chanel. Okay, now we have 11. You're like, I want a mini. Okay, now we have three. Pull all three of them and take a look. We've got a range of prices. And so it's like, it's giving you optionality and resale that you never had. So we still sell a ton out of our showrooms because people come in to shop, and 78% of the time, if they come in with a buying appointment, they buy something because we have wow. something in your price range mm-hmm. and we have so much to choose from that. You're going to find something you like. So yeah. it's interesting.
0: I know. I love it. And it's funny. Shout out to my sister. She actually is one that told me about fashion files. She probably is like one of your top users <laughs> but oh I'll my have you tell her to go in one of their, we'll go to one of your showrooms and check it out, but she loves you guys. For sure. You should. Yeah. And you know, so I'm curious, you had mentioned that, you know, you're working with, you partnered up with your brother-in-law and I believe you said your sister was also working with you. So this was still pretty
1: early. I think, was it 2006? You got, you partnered with him. So I mean, family affair. My brother, my brother joined a year later. He was the CTO. I mean, like literally it was like family. I didn't know how to hire anyone at that point. So yeah.
0: Yeah. So how did you think about partnering with your brother-in-law at the time?
1: So it's super interesting because when I was in law school, again, this comes to the mind of the person who's always trying to make a dollar. He is very entrepreneurial as well. He was actually starting, he was starting UCLA business school. He's more the traditional, wants to see the P&L sheet, wants to, you know, wants to talk about all the revenue numbers, EBITDA, all the details. And I'm more the, you know, I'm more the <laughs> harebrained entrepreneur who's just like, let's start something. When I was in law school, I was like, again, trying to find deals on books because law books are actually super expensive, the the case books you have to use. And so I'm like trying to find used law books and there's not like a real great spot for them. So of course, I like managed to convince my brother-in-law for whatever reason. I think he and my sister were just dating at the time. We started a website called LawSwap.com. No way. (laughs) I'm sure you've heard of it. No, I'm kidding. And it was an utter, it was, it ended up, it was a failure for lots of reasons. The main reason was we actually registered the URL and had it for a few years, but then they were I hadn't paid my you to pay to keep your your, your main URL. Renewal? Yeah. Your domain <laughs> renewal. And they were sending my my reminders to my AOL address that had changed. And by the time I realized we just log on to the website and it's gone. Somebody else has it. Oh no. You can get a lawyer and we had, I probably could have gotten it back had I, had I had a dollar to my name, but I didn't. That's how we lost that losswap.com. Probably for the best because what I realized is that the market is very, very, very small. They talk about TAM, your total address mar- market. That market is very small and the price point is low. So we weren't making very much per book. And anyway, so I recognized the difference when I started selling what I'm selling now. I was like, this is special. Whoa, this is feels very different from this other thing. But the most important thing I learned in that lesson was that I really like working with Ben. I feel like you have to have a partner. If anytime you're partnering anything, it's the same with my husband. Like I, you know, I've been married now for like 25 years or whatever. And if you find a partner where we're so different, so we cover a lot of territory. I have all this over here, he has all this over here. And when you talk about like a Venn diagram, the part that we cross over, all the important stuff we agree on, but everything else, we're like so different. You would be like, whoa, you know? But we cover a lot of territory that way. And so like my weaknesses are his strengths and vice versa. And I found a partner in my business that's the same. Ben and I are such opposites. So the things I'm bringing to the table Ben is so happy that I'm bringing them because he doesn't have them. And the things he's bringing to the table, I'm relieved that he's got them because it's not me. And actually, even sometimes the things that are my weaknesses that could really be the downfall of the business, I'm just gas, gas, gas. I'm, Let's go, you know? And sometimes you need to pull back. Sometimes you need to. Gonna be thoughtful and look to the, you know, and and so he's a really good balance. he balances out. And then it's actually just really nice because I have one sister who's his wife, who's my best friend, and then he is super tight with my husband. So we just have it's actually just really fun too. It happens to work out. It doesn't work out for everyone, but it for us it happens to work. And I just do find that if you have if you're looking for a partner that that that's kind of what I, you know, they always say you can hire for your, you should hire for your weaknesses. And we totally do that still to this day, anything you're not good at, you hire for those things. Those are the first things you want to hire out for. But the truth is, is that if you're looking for a partner, just you want somebody who's engaged and just like, for me at least in growing the business, I wanted to have someone who was like equally invested and had yeah. the same passion and enthusiasm who was going to grow up with me with those weaknesses. And you can, hire for those things. But honestly, that's expensive. At the early stage, I wouldn't yeah. have been able to do it. And and honestly, it, this is just, I wouldn't have been able to, I credit the growth of business is equally his as it is mine. He really brought those essential elements to help me to really kind of professionalize it and to grow it. And then I brought all of the kind of vision and other parts of it that are the brand and all those things together that created like this perfect mix. So it's worked. <laughs> I love that. I think that's
0: important. And, you know, I get this question a lot about how I work with my sister-in-law in my business. So we're also partners, but I get this question a lot in terms of how do you think about the equity split? And you mentioned something like early stages, you couldn't afford someone like him, right? So sometimes you yeah. think about equity. Of course, it's great that you trusted him. You guys had different skill sets, which is always huge when you're partnering with someone. So how did you guys think about it? Are you
1: equal partners or I'd love to just yeah. hear that. And I'll tell you, a lot of people like, don't want to get into those details, yeah. but I don't care. I'm fine. I'm fine with it. I started at that. And tw- I, in 2006, I was like, you know what? I think this can be huge. And I just don't think, and again, and a lot of it is, was imposter syndrome, but sometimes imposter syndrome is actually just true. <laughs> it's not true anymore. I now don't have that. I don't know. I, I can sit at the table and I love, I'm so grateful for the chance I've had to like, go through the fundraising process. And because the entire time I'm Googling, I'm learning. I'm like, what the heck are you talking about? Write that down. What does that mean? I don't even know and I'm not and pretend like I do and then I'm going to figure it out. And now I know. Now I speak the language and I'm so happy and grateful for that. But sometimes imposter syndrome is actually, I am an imposter. I really don't know. I'm in it over my head. And so at the time I was like, you know what? I actually think there is something here that could be huge. And I think that on my own, I'm unlikely to get there. I'd worked with Ben before and I'm like, it's those things that I really think I'm missing, number one, and number two, he was starting UCLA Business School, and I was like, the other thing that's gonna be really helpful in a situation like this is the connections you get in business school and especially a top tier school like that. There's a lot of networking and things that happen there that totally benefited our business. His Some of his relationships and things like that were very helpful. As we've grown the business, even in one of his classmates ended up, we got in a couple pickles at a time. It's like, oh my gosh, we have got taxes due on this day. We're going to be able to pay it off, but we got to pay this chunk. And someone from his business school ended up being really successful, wrote us a check that was, we needed it in two days. (laughs) Wired the money, whatever it was. We paid him back within a few months and he charged some interest. It was like so helpful. And this is when we were bootstrapped and hadn't raised any money. And then he was always like, okay, he did a few favors like that. They were so nice. And then finally, when we started raising money, he's like, let me know, you know, and he's now an investor of ours. And so that was just, that was a connection we would have never had. And it saved us a couple of times. So even before we were taking money. Yeah.
0: And how did you guys think just going back to like you and Ben splitting the equity early, early on?
1: So I went to him, I said, I think we can get here. I need you to do this fully with me. And really, it's so much bigger than what we're doing right now. And this is where it's controversial because I said, let's go 50-50. And I did that. I was, it was 2000. I really felt like for me to say to Ben, let's do a 50-50 because I believe that me giving 50% up, you are going to be equally engaged. And this, this thing is now going to be what it is today. And I have a concern that I don't even think is a fault. I don't, I don't even think it's just me being insecure. I think it's probably reality, that on my own, I'm less likely to get there. And I don't know, potentially could I have done something that's a little bit different? Could I have given, given him less? Maybe. But for the situation I was in, where he's starting, he had given up a really great career to, he started working, had a really great job when he went into business school. He just had opportunities. And I was like, this, you're the right guy for this. And it's, I've never, I've never regretted it once. I'm in a very unique situation because I've talked to a lot of people that are like, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, I've got, I'm trying to decide about my partner and it so depends on the partner. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that I'm like, why would you give them 5%? They're like, who, what is this person? Like you can hire that. You don't need that. My situation is very unique. I'm looking for literally, it's almost like a marriage for this thing that we had going. I was like, I, this is what I need. And so, yeah, that's how we did it.
0: Yeah. And it seems like you guys also, well, it's cool that he also was full-time in the business and you guys had started something prior. So you knew that what the working relationship was. Cause I also hear a lot, you know, when I was figuring out what to do, and even when I was working with my family, you know, we were talking about equity and everything, but some people are like, you want someone to like make the call. So maybe it's like 51 49 if you're both invested. So, but it just seems like you guys have a good relationship. So there's so many different ways to skin the cat, I guess.
1: Yeah. Ben and I actually we we spoke at this like business conference thing and somebody prior had said two pieces of advice. Number one, never work with family. And number yeah, two, yeah. never go 50-50. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we did both. We did both. Yeah. And honestly, the situation is just it's so unique and it's really just every every person is different. For us, I just feel like that would have created a power differential that I already am the founder of the company. I'm the face of the company. Sure. And honestly, like when every good thing I get credit for and every bad thing, they're like, oh, look at Ben coming (laughs) here, screw (laughs) up when Sarah started, you know, like, and the reality is, he's been so vital in the, you know, in the development of the company. I'm like, I don't want it to be that because I know that I'm going to get a lot of the credit that probably doesn't, I don't even deserve, meaning I do deserve I deserve 50-50 for sure. But I'm saying is that I sometimes feel that I I get an outweighted mm-hmm. credit, which yeah. I'm happy to take, <laughs> but it's only fair considering the contribution. We're in a unique situation. And, and there's times when I think that's the right thing to do, especially at the very early stage when you can't pay anybody. Basically, when your pay is your full-time job is funding your full-time job and credit cards are what's funding your <laughs> other job. You have less room there, but yeah.
0: Exactly. There's so many, I feel like we can do a whole nother podcast just about this, but I just was curious how you guys thought about it. I guess, you know, another question that I had, which I think is important to highlight, you guys were self-funded for gosh, 20 years, years, years. right? So tell me more. How do you guys think about bootstrapping the business and when and why did you guys think about bringing on an investor?
1: Yeah. So that's a great question. And I think that there's such hype around, around fundraising. And the other thing that's interesting is we, we're growing and we didn't raise money for 20 years and just not being to to like, I'm not trying to like brag or like pat ourselves on the back, but by the time we raised money, we were, you know, we had done like $90 million that year. So we weren't like a tiny company. No one knew who we were, but people knew about a lot of our competitors who actually at the time were way smaller than ours. And some of them that are still smaller than us, but because they'd raised a lot of money, there's a lot of awareness about them and chatter in the business world amongst analysts and investors and that which can seep out into other areas. And so it almost seemed like we're smaller than we were. And in some regards, that was some regards it was fine because we could go under the radar, you know, and some of the drama that would be pick up with some of our competitors. But for us, we we were growing. Like I said, our entire and my, you know, every single year uh, we were business, we were growing. So we've been growing, we were growing 50% a year, every single year and always profitable. When you're bootstrapped, you know, there's not like a hairdresser in town or a restaurant that's like, well, we've been in business for a year and we've never been profitable. Like what you would close down, you know? And so for whatever reason, it, when you, we were talking about like, you know, in e-commerce and in technology, there's a lot of businesses that start and they the idea is to get profitable, to kind of like just get going, get some growth, and then become profitable. But there's a certain t- period of time when you've just been doing it so long and you're not profitable that isn't even a business. Yeah. It's an experiment. And sometimes it's an experiment that fails. If you're in business for 10 years and it's never, or however many years, you start to wonder. So what I think happened for us is we were growing and we're profitable. And so we would say, what would we do with the money? We were invited to Tech Coast Angels is an investor in the LA area. And they wanted to invest in our business and, and gave us an offer in 2007. And Ben and I are like, what would we do with the money? You know, we would give up a chunk of the business and we're profitable and growing. And what we do with it, we'd spend it on marketing. Is that going to come back to us? We'd send it on products like, oh, we can't even sell more than we're already doing right now. And so we just kind of said no. And we would talk to everyone. Anytime someone to talk, because when you talk to people, you're learning. Like, again, like I was saying how it's another language and so in these conversations along the way, I'm like nodding and like very interesting and like writing down all the words I don't know and the concepts I don't understand. And then after I'm like listening to podcasts, reading books, like Googling, what is this? And so, and every one of those conversations is just so helpful. You're learning all the while. So we had all the conversations and then we got to a certain point where, again, we're still growing, we're still profitable, but we're like, there's just so many more competitors entering the space. We were kind of alone for like 13 years, 14 years. You know, real real came in at about, you know, 2013-14. We were kind of alone before that. And then just so many people coming in and we're just like, you know what? If we don't grow faster and really try to gain some awareness, we potentially could lose what we've built just because we're trying to keep the equity and not just grow it at, at a slower pace. And so we were worried about the idea that we're giving up a lot of market share that should have been ours. And like I said, from 2013, 14, when they started raising money up till 2019, when we did, we actually are grateful for all of the awareness building. When you Google vintage Louis Vuitton monograms, Beanie 25 or Chanel grand shopping tote, Fashion Fashionphile will come up, you know, like that does definitely doesn't hurt us as more people are like, oh, I can buy an authentic vintage this, they Google it, they'll find us. That's all been very helpful. And just the awareness of the category has been good, but we just finally said, you know what, let's go for it. Like, let's just do it. We were afraid that if we don't, that potentially it just becomes too much. And so we realized that there's three things that we're really kind of lacking. One is awareness. People didn't, and still, we're still kind of struggling in that area because we sell at just the top of the market. And so when you try to market to the world, it doesn't translate to dollars. We really need to try to market to a tiny niche. And so we don't want to, we don't need We can't buy general awareness because it will, then we won't be profitable. So we needed awareness, the right kind of awareness. We needed a team that was had experience that really could help us deal with some of the big problems. Just handling the idea that we're, you know, when you're talking about growing the amount of money, a CFO who's been there, done that, and understands there's power with money. There's power in leveraging it right and to getting the right kinds of loans and the organization, all that. There's real power you can get behind that. We don't know what we're doing with that. This is the most money we've ever dealt with every day, You know, day. We're building technology with our team. We're like, we, we need to build more to be able to scale our business. It really requires technology to be developed that is expensive, that we just can't afford to grow faster unless we raise money. So we did that. And then we went out with and and kind of, Went out like a, you know, a traditional fundraising round looking for private equity partner or, and ended up with Neiman Marcus as our first investor, which was seriously, can you imagine? It was like a Cinderella moment. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You've raised from a few different people. Okay. Got it. So Neiman Marcus is one of the. Yeah.
1: So Neiman Marcus was our first investor and, you know, just a strategic partner there. It was just a really great minority investment from new and really the point of it was just to say let's get some strategic things in place between us and take some money so they own part of the business so they're really motivated to kind of keep it going which was great but they had like a chunk that they were looking to invest and we wanted to raise more so we went out and within like a year we were looking for a particular dollar amount they were we settled on a smaller amount and so ended up raising the rest from someone else later.
0: Well, that's amazing. What a princess moment like to have Nima Marcus come in. That's incredible. So, you know, the last question I want to end with, I feel I honestly feel like I could talk to you for hours. But despite all this incredible success you've had with the business for over 20 years, which is so amazing, you also have had four kids along the way. Right. And I think they're all like teenagers
1: now. Hold on. How old are they now? Oh, they're old. No. Cause when I, cause I've been in the business so long. So <laughs> I started, when I started selling, I had a four month old. So she's, they've all grown up in the business. So now my youngest is 17. She's in high school. Now I've got three in college. So I, they've all worked for the business and they're all like, yeah, I love that as someone who I don't
0: have any kids yet, but I really look to women like you who are having kids are running their own businesses. Yeah. Such a cliche question, but I still feel like it's helpful. Like what advice do you have for women who are looking to kind of balance? I don't like the word balance, but kind of live in those both worlds of running a business and still having kids.
1: I mean, I will say, I will say selfishly, I I came from a big family. I wanted to have a big family and I really wanted to be in it. I like really want to be in the thick of it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with really separating those worlds out. I think everybody does it their own way and makes it work. But that's like a luxury you have when you do your own business. You can do whatever you want. You can really have a lot of flexibility that you don't get other ways. And that was one of those things is I'm like, Going out and pitching all these law offices at the time, there was no such thing as like flex time or like shared schedules. It was really just 40-hour weeks that are really like 60-hour weeks as you prove yourself in those early years. And I was just really excited about both parts of, the, of my life, and I wanted didn't really want that. And I, this other part was allowing me to actually experience a lot more flexibility on that side if you own your own business and you want to volunteer at the school during the day, once a week, you can do that if you want, you know, and even quite frankly, when my kids were younger, I even had more flexibility. Now it's a lot more, you know, as you start getting going, there's a lot more room there. I had that. I kind of always looked at my great, great grandmothers. Her husband went out to Europe On a mission for like seven years, left her at the farm with her like seven kids. Robin, wow, you know, I mean, this is our grandmothers did this where they're like working the farm with their kids in their skirt. We have a luxury of like these separate lives, and I kind of just thought of myself as that like the farm mom with my kid on my lap and dragging them out to the post office, and I was able to kind of have that lifestyle. And then, like I said, my kids have all worked in the business you know at varying points and they there's lessons learned that now. now my kids are in college and my son sends me literal attacks which is hilarious i feel like it's like the full circle of life but he'll sh- send me texts and all it is is like his big big ikea bags that are filled with his packages going to the post office cuz he goes to the goodwill bins and then sells on depop oh my and i'm like gosh. it's it's so full circle, and he knows that he he makes me so proud in those little moments. But I feel like you doing that, me doing what I was doing, like literally trying to rush these. I would bring a stroller filled with all my packages to the post office, no kid in it. I got a kid in my <laughs> hand and a kid strapped to my belly, and I'm pushing a cart full of packages into the post office. And I'm like, "Your kids see that, you know?" And wow. I'm so grateful that they did. And I think those are lessons they can't get other ways. And Like I said, if I would have worked at a law firm and had childcare, my kids would be fine. They would learn other lessons that way. I'm not disparaging. There's lots of different ways. This is a, you know, the way I did it was, it gave me kind of the the best of both worlds in the way that I wanted to live it at the time. And honestly, now I'm old and tired. I probably wouldn't do it that way (laughs) anymore. I probably no, leave them there. No, but at the time I wasn't, I really enjoyed that whole like madness of it. But yeah. I love that.
0: Oh my gosh. Well, this was amazing, Sarah. I'm so inspired by you. I can't, I'm so excited to see like how Fashion File continues to grow, but this was amazing. Thank you so, so much for joining us today.
1: You know what? I love talking to people who are passionate about what they're doing too. And so I like feel the enthusiasm. Like I could talk to you I all day too. I can feel you so too. You. I know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks
1: for making thank you.
0: it fun. <laughs>